MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Judge Eileen Cannon of the U.S. District Court in Florida is jeopardizing the nuclear balance of the world to say nothing of international peace. Merely in order to fulfill her undisguised, petty, corrupt payback to the sack of human feces to whom she owes her job. She has given the lawyers for that sack of human feces until 10 a.m. Eastern, Monday, to answer the Department of Justice demand that she stay her order for a special master. Translation, stay her order that the rule of law, the rule of common sense, and the urgent defense needs of a nation do not apply to the sack of human feces who handed her the job for which she has now proved herself professionally unqualified and ethically bankrupt about. The deadline is nominally about Trump's lawyers Monday morning. It is, in reality, a deadline for Eileen Cannon to save herself from becoming a clear and present danger to the national defense of this country. We know Trump stole and kept a document detailing the nuclear capabilities of another nation and that this nation did not have this vitally essential document back in its hands until a month ago. There are only seven countries besides our own that have nuclear capabilities. Let's call them what they are. Nuclear weapons. It's only six if you don't include Israel, which has never publicly confirmed it. But whether six or seven, their governments are in turmoil now, and the situation is as dangerous at this hour as if an international agent had stolen that document in order to sell it to yet another country, which could, of course, be essentially what Trump did anyway. Without using real names, to help you envision this as two enemy nations being involved, that will make the danger so much more clear for you, I think. The document describes the nuclear capabilities of one of the other seven nuclear countries. Let's call that nation Bisrael. I mean, it's just a name chosen at random. If it's enemy, a nation without nuclear capabilities, let's call that Saudi Arabia, Again, it's just a name, just a random name. 
If they were to see that document, Saudi Arabia could launch preemptive strikes or raids on Israel's nuclear capabilities, or just as plausibly, Israel could simply fear that its secrets had been seen by Saudi Arabia and attack or raid Saudi Arabia before Saudi Arabia attacked or raided it. And all that would require would be Trump having shown the recovered document to almost anybody. Most directly, he could have just shown it to Saudi Arabia himself or perhaps a friend or relative or Mar-a-Lago caddy or Russian-speaking spy posing as Anna de Rothschild could have seen it and told Saudi Arabia why it's even hypothetically possible that one of Trump's relatives could have shown it to Saudi Arabia, a child, a cousin, an in-law, a son-in-law. Each day, the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense cannot be certain that there are not other little nuclear capability documents that Trump stole and hid better than he hid that one. The world is at risk. Maybe there are other assessments of the military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities of, again, just picking names at random, Jackistan or Windia or Prance or the United Kingdom, or Krina, or Trussia, or even East Korea. This is what Judge Eileen Cannon is risking. Now, it could be that there are not any more documents to be found, or that the international consequences of that one recovered nuclear document have already been foreseen and precluded, or maybe not, oops, and when we look back at how World War III started, the survivors will stand around shaking their heads in the muck, sadly, and say, Eileen Cannon. The documents recovered, plus that little wild card of the very realistic chance of documents unrecovered. The DOJ emphasized this in its filing to Judge Cannon last night. The documents recovered are so top secret, so tightly guarded that many senior American national security officials not only don't get to see them, but don't know they exist. And this buffoon canon wants to find a special master to read through all of these documents that don't exist and decide if maybe they belong to Trump after all. Where would you find a special master cleared to do something like that. Well, I understand there's a good man in New York here who might be able to handle this. I think his name is Karid Jushner. Judge Cannon has one opportunity to correct her disaster of almost literally biblical proportions. She should stay her order. Failing that, the DOJ should, as it warned last night, appeal to the 11th Circuit by September 15th. And if that too fails, bluntly, the DOJ and the Pentagon should ignore the Trump prostitutes on both benches and act as it needs to act in the national defense. And let's not again hear from any of these douchebag Republicans about how the search of Trump's home, which successfully recovered nuclear secrets Trump stole... Let's not hear again ever about how that represents politicizing the Department of Justice. Jeffrey Berman, the Trump appointee who ran the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, details in extraordinary length how Trump and then Attorney General Barr pressured him and his colleagues on three separate occasions to launch a prosecution of John Kerry because John Kerry negotiated the Iran nuclear deal, and after Trump sabotaged the Iran nuclear deal, John Kerry publicly defended the Iran nuclear deal. Send Kerry to jail for Hatch Act violations. Or as Berman writes, they were asking us basically what's taking so long. Why aren't you going harder and faster at this enemy of the president? Periodically, the thought enters my mind that after his conviction... Trump should be imprisoned in the full Hannibal Lecter outlet and outfit, only on an isolated rock outcropping deep somewhere in the Atlantic, above or below water. Meanwhile, there is a new grand jury going in Washington. It is looking at Trump's Save America PAC, which was nominally created to support his legal challenges to the 2020 election. But if you remember this from the video series I did that fall, the fine print read, it did not require Trump to spend any money on anything but himself. There are already subpoenas 
sent to, quote, junior and mid-level aides who worked in the White House and for Mr. Trump's presidential campaign, that according to the New York Times. And lastly, there is uh, some comic relief. America's Rasputin, only more unkempt, Steve Bannon. He has indeed been charged by the Manhattan District Attorney with emptying the till of the imaginary charity designed to build the imaginary wall to keep out the imaginary invasion. Bannon now faces two felony counts of money laundering, two felony counts of conspiracy, and one felony count of a scheme to defraud. They did not charge him about the haircut. And just in case you missed his written version of this, from Wednesday night... I am never going to stop fighting. In fact, I have not yet begun to fight. They will have to kill me first. He repeated the highlights during his perp walk. And yes, we need an entire streaming network that just shows this 20 seconds or so of video of Bannon again and again and again and again. They will never shut me up now if they kill me first. I have not yet begun to fight. Again and again and again and again. Once more? Yeah, why not? For every conservative This is what happens the last days of a dying regime. They will never shut me up now if they kill me first. I have not yet begun to fight. Like I said yesterday, dude, they'll have to kill me first seems a little harsh, but if you say so. Still ahead on Countdown, as if you had not heard, Queen Elizabeth II died yesterday. If you hate imperialism and you hate monarchy, it was still okay to like her because she really seemed cool with all that, too. Worse persons. On the other hand, some of the attempts to console the grieving British populace did not go very well. Wrong day for any tweet showing any photo of London alongside the phrase, there's a new king in town. And in sports, baseball is going to ban the shift. Because the problem is not incompetent or lazy hitters who only know how to hit home runs. It's defensive strategy that has been used almost continuously in Major League Baseball since 18-freaking-74. That's next. This is Countdown. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. And still ahead on Countdown, Thurber's Fables, Baseball's Shifts, My Confusions About What Day It Is Today, all part of life's rich pageant. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day to Miami and Pumpkin, for whom Paw Patrol Animal Rescue there and Sanctuary is doing a fundraiser on Cuddly. They can't be sure of this, of course, but it sure looks like Pumpkin's, quote, human decided to dispose of him by throwing him in a canal. Somehow this guy, who looks like a standard hound with a bit of a beagle look to him, survived, made it to shore, was rescued, and then collapsed in the Good Samaritan's arms. That's when they discovered a back leg was terribly broken as well. He's not eating. He needs a lot of help. If you want to donate, you can find Pumpkin's fundraiser on the Cuddly website or just look for my tweet about Pumpkin on my account for dogs in need at Tom Jumbo Grumbo. And thank you very much. Coming up on Countdown, this may be the day baseball gets rid of the shift. You'll be sorry. And when not to tweet that photo of Garfield leaning against a London landmark with the caption, there's a new king in town. Coming up. First, postscripts to the news, some headlines, some thoughts, and some snark. Dateline Balmoral, Scotland. Imagine starting a new job today and staying on it until the afternoon of Saturday, April 11th, 2093. 25,782 days. That is how long Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was Queen of England. She died 25 years to the day after the Spencer family collected all the flowers left by the public and arranged those flowers atop Diana's grave. You do not have to advocate for monarchy, I don't think, constitutional or otherwise, and I don't, to be awestruck at Queen Elizabeth's longevity, nor to appreciate what she meant to her nation and around the world. There are millions of words being spent to try to process her life and her loss. And yet I think there's a simpler way. The United Kingdom and the world simultaneously grieved yesterday and smiled. 
smiled at the last Paddington Bear video, which one suspects will still be shown on Saturday, April 11th, 2093, and felt free to laugh at the Reggie Jackson in custody joke and Reggie Jackson's tweet about being innocent after all and the gallows humor about the new Prime Minister Liz Truss knocking her off on day one. But I think it's always been like this. This extraordinary balance between reverence and gentle mockery. I did an impression of the Queen's voice on a radio commercial in college for a place called Commons Clothing. And it ended with my friend saying, my liege. And I said, Neil. And he said, my name is Philip. And I don't recall anybody taking offense or even any of us thinking offense was meant. And that was in 1978. There is an ancient Monty Python joke that I think sums it up. An Australian character says, it's hot enough to boil a monkey's bum. And another Australian says, that's a strange expression, Bruce. And Bruce says, I heard the prime minister use it. It's hot enough in here to boil a monkey's bum, your majesty, he said. And she smiled quietly to herself. And the other guy says, she's a good Sheila, Bruce. And not at all stuck up. Silly as it seems... That was kind of the point. Unlike her father, unlike her grandfather, unlike her great-grandfather, and certainly unlike her great-great-grandmother, Victoria, she adroitly walked this tightrope. Sure, she was the queen. And you could take her and the whole crazy premise of there being a queen as seriously as you wanted or as unseriously. She was fine with it either way. She was a good queen and not at all stuck up. And there was the extraordinary recounting of meeting the Queen under trying circumstances shared by the trauma surgeon David Knott, himself at the time just back from working under terrifying circumstances in devastated Aleppo in Syria about a decade ago. Dr. Knott wrote, My bottom lip started to go and all I wanted to do was burst into tears, but I held myself together as best I could. I hoped she wouldn't ask me another question about Aleppo. I knew if she did, I would completely lose control. She looked at me quizzically and touched my hand. She then had a quiet word with one of the courtiers who pointed to a silver box in front of her. I watched as she opened the box, which was full of biscuits. These are for the dogs, she said, breaking one of the biscuits in two and giving me half. We fed the biscuits to the corgis under the table, and for the rest of the lunch, she took the lead and chatted about her dogs, how many she had, what their names were, how old they were. All the while, we were stroking and petting them, and my anxiety and distress drained away. There, the queen said, that's so much better than talking, isn't it? There is always something extraordinary also about the other obituary at times like this. Farrah Fawcett died the same day as Michael Jackson died. And Bernard Shaw died the same day, or at least his death was announced the same day as that of Queen Elizabeth. Bernard Shaw retired 20 years ago from CNN, made periodic appearances after that point, but had removed himself from media, once saying he regretted how much his career cost him in the way of home life. And do not misunderstand me here. He was one of the rocks upon which CNN was founded and grew to importance. He gave it credibility when it had almost none. I know, I was there. Shaw's work from Baghdad as the American bombing of Iraq began in January 1991, alongside my friends John Holloman and Peter Arnett, by itself gave CNN a credibility it had struggled to find for its first decade, although I always like to take an occasion like this to underscore how important John Holloman really was in the formative years of CNN. In fact, it was he who managed to put the three of them back on from Baghdad after all communication had seemingly failed. John was a lovely, calm, funny, astute, repertorial man taken from the world in a car accident in 1998. Bernard Shaw was also the anchor of CNN's first newscast of record, Prime News. When I broke in at CNN 1981 through 1984, I spent about a third of my time working from the Washington Bureau of CNN, often for weeks at a time, and I'm sorry to say this under these circumstances, but I never saw Bernie Shaw be nice to anybody. It's an awful thing to say, but it's true. I know when I'm gone, a lot of people will say he wasn't nice to me, but there'll be others who said, no, he was nice to me. The newscast that Bernie Shaw did was done in the newsroom, in the middle of all the desks. Every person there at every desk, and there had to have been 40 of them, 
right around the anchor desk, every one of us on a deadline of some sorts. All I remember about Bernard Shaw from literally a hundred days or more in that newsroom while he was on the air was the studio lights coming up and Bernard Shaw shouting, typewriters, like that, every time. And everybody there, no matter how important their task or how pressing their deadline, stopping their typewriting. Except me, of course. I didn't work for him. There is also no sugarcoating this. It was Bernie Shaw as one of the panelists in the second 1988 presidential debate between George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis, who began that debate by asking Michael Dukakis, a staunch opponent of capital punishment, about his wife. As the opening question, this is what Bernie Shaw said. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? There must have been a reason for Bernard Shaw to frame that question in such a way to make another man hypothesize about the rape and murder of his own wife live, in public, on television, in a presidential debate. There must have been a reason to frame it that way, but I've been thinking about it pretty much nonstop since 1988, and I will be damned if I ever figure out what that reason was. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, ESPN is reporting that Major League Baseball's competition committee will vote today on a bunch of rules changes, some of them logical, some of them childish and stupid, but all of them, per Jesse Rogers of ESPN, expected to pass and go into use next season. There will be a pitch clock, 15 seconds with the bases empty, 20 seconds with runners on, also, pitchers can only get off the pitching rubber twice per opposition at bat. The penalty for all this will be an automatic ball will be called against the pitcher. I'm in favor of these rules, but I need to prepare you for this, and you better start thinking about this every day between now and opening day 2023. Every time baseball has ever tried to regulate pitchers, to get them to do something they did not want to do, nor we're not used to, and pitchers are like racehorses. If there's a guy in the wrong seat in the back of the stands, a pitcher can come completely apart at the seams. Usually in the past, baseball has tried to change the bulk rule. Infamously, in 1963 and 1988, each year the game ground to a halt. Dozens and dozens of balks were called. Sometimes it seemed as if that was all that was going on in the game. Balk after balk after balk. Also for next year, hitters must be in the batter's box with eight seconds to go on this 20-second or 15-second clock, or it's an automatic strike. And I'm sure they will take that real well, too. April 2023, in short, will be chaos. I predict there will be at least one game that ends in a double no-hitter with nothing but strikeouts and walks. They will enlarge the bases from 15 inches square to 18, which is really just a safety issue. They will now make stealing second base much safer. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Why don't we steal away into the 18-inch base? All they have to do now is to make the bases soft again rather than what they are now, which is slicker than raked sand on a wet day. But the dumb one of all these rule changes, two infielders must be on either side of second base, all of them on the infield dirt on the inner grass. Two infielders on the left side, two infielders on the right side. None of these three guys on one side shift. Though, apparently infielders can back up once the pitch is thrown. This is idiotic. The first infield shifts in Major League Baseball were used in 1874. They have been used against Ted Williams. They have been used against Willie McCovey. 
the whole point of the game was expressed once by a Hall of Famer named Wee Willie Keeler. Hit them, baseballs, where they, fielders, ain't. If shifting had never been permitted, the first, second, and third baseman would still all be playing where custom had them playing in the year 1870. Standing on first base, second base, and third base as hit after hit rocketed past them and they remained anchored and immobile. And the shortstop? Well, without shifting, the shortstop would still be playing out in short left center field or right center field because the shortstop was originally not the twin of the second baseman. The shortstop was a guy who went roving between the infield and outfield, hence the use of the term short in his name. But we have to eliminate shifting now because hitters are too stupid to learn how to hit anywhere except out of the ballpark. One other sports note, there is a site called Clutch Points, and it has an app, and the app has a Twitter account. And yes, shortly after the death of Queen Elizabeth, it tweeted out to its 108,000 followers, Buckingham Palace has announced that Queen Elizabeth II has passed away at age 96. Our sincerest condolences to the royal family through this tough time. Fine. A A little clunky, but fine. However, beneath this admirable sentiment was an illustration labeled Queen's Final Farewell, which depicts her ascending stairs made out of clouds to some sort of golden house or something at the top and taking one last look at great British athletes like David Beckham, Luol Dang, O.G. Ananobi, a boxer, might be Anthony Joseph, doesn't look like him, and several other athletes. that They deleted it. However, I must say this, whoever made this rather intricate thing, the look on Queen Elizabeth's face is exactly the same as the look on Burt Lancaster's face in Field of Dreams as he walks off into the corn. Still ahead, Fridays with James Thurber, and we will bring you some of his incomparable fables. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The silver, Mel, me again. My recounting of the inexplicable fact that not Trump nor his defenders had denied that he stole a document describing the nuclear capabilities of another country which I provided in Thursday's episode, I repeatedly referred to Tuesday as Wednesday and Wednesday as Thursday. Well, sir, apart from short holiday week syndrome, I will also plead medical reasons. I am heading in for knee surgery, and understandably, they have taken away my anti-inflammatories, and bluntly, I am surprised I can still see the microphone, let alone still write copy. I will also use this opportunity to express surprise that is on the level of the surprise I felt the day I read a street sign in Winooski, Vermont in 1983 that read, Begin No Parking Here, which made me say out loud, But I'm already no parking, and then made me say, Wait, begin no parking here, so I can't park from here all the way till the end of the world? The reason I'm as surprised now as I was then, I had to go to the hospital to get a COVID test, before the surgery. That's fine, too. But first, I had to fill out a survey online telling the folks at the hospital that I didn't have COVID. And then when I got to the hospital for the COVID test, they screened me to make sure I didn't have any symptoms of COVID. Like, if you're taking my word for it and you don't want me to come into the hospital if I have COVID, why do I have to come to the hospital at all? The runner's up, a Twitter account called Garfield Fan Art. This is a little reminiscent of that thing that happened in sports. About an hour before the Queen's death, this account tweeted a photo of a giant version of the cartoon cat, Garfield, leaning against London's Big Ben with the caption, there's a new king in town. Oops. You mean oops, don't you? Just say oops and get out. 
But our winners, foxnews.com, taking shots at the cable competition is not new. I started doing it in ooh, 1998. It is possible I invented it, although I doubt that. But this is really twisted. See if you can follow this. There is a story on the Fox site with the headline, Memphis Shooting Spree, CNN, MSNBC primetime shows avoid breaking news, arrest of Ezekiel Kelly. While Fox News Channel's Hannity and the Ingram Angle covered the developing story, the competing programs on the liberal networks did not. In fact, Laura Ingram's show was on tape. When they say covering the developing story, Fox means they were showing random video from Memphis, the same couple of pieces of tape again and again and again, while Ingram was whining on with Senator Tom Cotton about how at the end of the day, who knows. But there's more still to this. Again, quoting this Fox article, the CNN and MSNBC hosts dedicated much of their programs discussing the latest developments in the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, yeah, those pesky latest developments that Fox didn't name. That was all that stuff about Trump stealing a document describing another nation's nuclear capabilities. And they only covered the murderer in Memphis because A, the suspect was black. B, That meant that Fox could call out Don Lemon of CNN for once having said white men are the country's biggest terror threat. And C, it gave Fox something, anything to cover other than the Trump treason. Fox, give me a story, any story other than Trump. Can we do this Elizabeth Queen thing for her? Who's named Elizabeth Queen anyway? News, today's worst persons in the world. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. 
Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of us. We're figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it it would have been been a podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Now to the number one story on the countdown, and since it's the weekend, it's Fridays with Thurber. You don't see a lot of new fables anymore these days. People aren't writing as many fables as they used to. There was Aesop around 580 B.C., and then James Thurber around 1939, and that's pretty much it. Fables require animals to stand in for people. They need to be short. They need to be precise. They need to end with a moral. They should be, if not laugh-out-loud funny, at least wry and thought-provoking. Three years ago, it was my privilege to write the foreword to Michael J. Rosen's new volume, James Thurber Collected Fables, which includes many of the fables that had not previously been published in a book. Despite my foreword, I suspect you will enjoy that book anyway. Thurber published most of his fables, and most of everything else, in the New Yorker magazine. He collected 28 of them in his 1940 volume, Fables for Our Time and Famous Poems Illustrated. His further Fables for Our Time came out in 1956 and is heavily influenced by the era of McCarthyism. Many of the fables are classics. Some are sleepers. All are great. Let me give you three of them to carry you through the weekend, starting with maybe, maybe the best. A little misogynistic, but damned fun. And certainly the best of them in terms of being known to the public. The Unicorn in the Garden by James Thurber. Once upon a sunny morning, a man who sat in a breakfast nook looked up from his scrambled eggs to see a white unicorn with a golden horn quietly cropping the roses in the garden. The man went up to the bedroom where his wife was still asleep and woke her. There's a unicorn in the garden, he said, eating roses. She opened one unfriendly eye and looked at him. The unicorn is a mythical beast, she said, and turned her back on him. The man walked slowly downstairs and out into the garden. The unicorn was still there. He was now browsing among the tulips. Here, unicorn, said the man, and he pulled up a lily and gave it to him. The unicorn ate it gravely. With a high heart... Because there was a unicorn in his garden, the man went upstairs and roused his wife again. The unicorn, he said, ate a lily. His wife sat up in bed and looked at him coldly. You are a booby, she said, and I'm going to have you put in the booby hatch. The man, who had never liked the words booby and booby hatch, and who liked them even less on a shining morning when there was a unicorn in the garden thought for a moment. We'll see about that, he said. He walked over to the door. He has a golden horn in the middle of his forehead, he told her. Then he went back to the garden to watch the unicorn, but the unicorn had gone away. The man sat down among the roses and went to sleep. As soon as the husband had gone out of the house, the wife got up and dressed as fast as she could. She was very excited, and there was a gloat in her eye. She telephoned the police, and she telephoned a psychiatrist. She told them to hurry to her house and bring a straitjacket. When the police and the psychiatrist arrived, they sat down in chairs and looked at her with great interest. My husband, she said, saw a unicorn this morning. The police looked at the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist looked at the police. He told me it ate a lily. She said. The psychiatrist looked at the police, and the police looked at the psychiatrist. He told me it had a golden horn in the middle of its forehead, she said. At a solemn signal from the psychiatrist, the police leaped from their chairs and seized the wife. They had a hard time subduing her, for she put up a terrific struggle, but they finally subdued her. 
Just as they got her into the straitjacket, the husband came back into the house. Did you tell your wife you saw a unicorn? asked the police. Of course not, said the husband. The unicorn is a mythical beast. That's all I wanted to know, said the psychiatrist. Take her away. I'm sorry, sir, but your wife is as crazy as a jaybird. So they took her away, cursing and screaming, and shut her up in an institution. The husband lived happily ever after. Moral? Don't count your boobies until they are hatched. The Unicorn in the Garden by James Thurber. I promise three. Here's the second one. It's a little less joyful and silly. The Rabbits Who Caused All the Trouble by James Thurber. Within the memory of the youngest child, there was a family of rabbits who lived near a pack of wolves. The wolves announced that they did not like the way the rabbits were living. The wolves were crazy about the way they themselves were living because it was the only way to live. One night, several wolves were killed in an earthquake, and this was blamed on the rabbits, for it is well known that rabbits pound on the ground with their hind legs and cause earthquakes. On another night, one of the wolves was killed by a bolt of lightning, and this was also blamed on the rabbits, for it is well known that lettuce eaters cause lightning. The wolves threatened to civilize the rabbits if they didn't behave, and the rabbits decided to run away to a desert island. But the other animals, who lived at a great distance, shamed them, saying, You must stay where you are and be brave. This is no world for escapists. If the wolves attack you, we will come to your aid, in all probability. So... The rabbits continued to live near the wolves, and one day there was a terrible flood which drowned a great many wolves. This was blamed on the rabbits, for it is well known that carrot nibblers with long ears caused floods. The wolves descended upon the rabbits for their own good and imprisoned them in a dark cave for their own protection. When nothing was heard about the rabbits for some weeks, the other animals demanded to know what had happened to them. The wolves replied that the rabbits had been eaten, and since they had been eaten, the affair was a purely internal matter. But the other animals warned that they might possibly unite against the wolves unless some reason was given for the destruction of the rabbits. So the wolves gave them one. They were trying to escape, said the wolves. And as you know, this is no world for escapists. Moral? Run. Don't walk to the nearest desert island. The Rabbits Who Caused All the Trouble by James Thurber. And one last one, and I've mentioned this before in other settings, but I'll mention it again. I have a tattoo that pertains to this particular one, and I have an ex-girlfriend running around who has the moral to this one on her shoulders. I wonder how she ever explained that. The Moth and the Star by James Thurber. A young and impressionable moth once set his heart on a certain star. He told his mother about this, and she counseled him to set his heart on a bridge lamp instead. Stars aren't the thing to hang around, she said. Lamps are the thing to hang around. You get somewhere that way, said the moth's father. You don't get anywhere chasing stars. But the moth would not heed the words of either parent. Every evening at dusk when the star came out, he would start flying toward it, and every morning at dawn he would crawl back home, worn out with his vain endeavor. One day his father said to him, You haven't burned a wing in months, boy, and it looks to me as if you're never going to. All your brothers have been badly burned, flying around street lamps, and all your sisters have been terribly singed, flying around house lamps. Come on now, get out of here and get yourself scorched. Big strapping moth like you without a mark on him. The moth left his father's house, but he would not fly around street lamps and he would not fly around house lamps. He went right on trying to reach the star, which was four and one-third light years or 25 trillion miles away. The moth thought it was just caught in the top of the branches of an elm over there. He never did reach the star, but he went right on trying night after night. When he was a very, very old moth, he began to think that he 
really had reached the star, and he went around saying so. This gave him a deep and lasting pleasure, and he lived to a great old age. His parents and his brothers and his sisters had all been burned to death when they were quite young. Moral, who flies afar from the sphere of our sorrow is here today and here tomorrow. The Moth and the Star by James Thurber. I've done all the damage I can do here. Help me out. Give me this uh, good review or rating or subscription or forward it to somebody. This, this podcast thing. Thank you very much. The Countdown theme from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown Musical Directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. The guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. The other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Our sports music, the Olbermann theme, written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Incorporated. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. And our announcer today was Larry David. That's Countdown for this, the 610th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while you still can. A new episode Monday. That's the plan. Ask the surgeon. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.